It's time to envision a new way of being heirs of the Reformation, a new way that happens to conform to the original Catholic vision of the Reformers. We at the Theopolis Institute would like to invite you to the 6th Annual Nevin Lectures, which will be on the topic of Reformational Catholicism. These lectures will be held February 22nd and 23rd here in Birmingham, Alabama. And for more information and registration, there's a link in the show notes. And you can also head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and head to the Lectures tab under Events. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the Content Manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the Song of Songs with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. And in this episode, they'll be discussing chapters 3 and 4. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by listening in on this discussion over this book. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart. I'm here with Alistair Roberts, who is uh, still visiting with us here in Birmingham. And uh, it's good to have you live to be able to discuss these passages and to uh, work our way through the Song of Songs. In this series, we've uh, done some introductory discussions of different uh, various issues that uh, have to do with the interpretation of the song, the, the dating and the authorship, those kind of introductory matters. We talked about the song as wisdom. We talked about the song as allegory. We talked about specifically about the garden and temple imagery of the song. And uh, then last time we started working our way through the song, uh, taking a couple of chapters with each episode and just highlighting things. We can't, uh, we can't run through everything that's in these chapters, but we can highlight certain features and certain uh, interesting twists of the poem that uh, contribute to a, a, uh, the allegorical reading that we're suggesting. So this week we're in chapters three and four. Chapters 1 and 2, chapter 1 begins with the dialogue that we talked about last time between the bride and the bridegroom. The bride begins the dialogue, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, and then the bridegroom responds, and we have this back and forth in seven speeches. And then an invitation from the bridegroom to the bride to come out into the springtime, into the new life, into the new world that's dawning, uh, that's springing up. In, uh, that's in uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. One of the dynamics of the song, though, is a dynamic of presence and absence of approach and then a separation. And that's what we have here at the beginning of chapter 3. So the, the bridegroom has appeared. He's become a superhero who can bound over mountains in, in one jump. That's what love does to you. Uh, just ask the courtly love poets of the Middle Ages. They'll tell you that uh, you become more athletic when you're in love. You become better looking. Everything about you improves. Uh, and uh, that's the picture that we have here, that the bridegroom is so um, so energized by his love for the bride that he's leaping over the mountains, uh, and he's become virtually superhuman. But then, beginning of chapter 3, we have uh, an interruption of this moment, which seemed to be a moment of union and moving toward consummation, and suddenly uh, the bride realizes that her lover is not with her in the bed. And so she rises and walks through the street looking for him, uh, searching for him, and eventually does find him and bring him back. The following section in chapter 3-6, I think, that really goes through 
the beginning of chapter five, that seems to be all one section pretty much. Uh, you begin with this approach of the what's called the couch of Solomon, the traveling couch of T Solomon, the pal palanquin of Solomon coming up out of the wilderness. Um, I think we need to ignore the chapter break at chapter four because the this traveling couch coming up out of the wilderness leads into the poem that begins chapter four, which is the bridegroom's Solomon's first uh, wasif. A wasif is a I think an Egyptian term, it's an ancient term for a certain style of poetry that describes uh, a beloved person and the features of a beloved person, often with metaphors and similes, comparing the different features of the person to other beautiful or awesome things in the world, uh, similar to the English blazon, that, uh, that's the term that's used by literature scholars in English to describe a similar kind of poem. I keep meaning to look this up. The only blazons I know in English poetry are, are parodies, so I, I need to find an actual one. But if you want a parody, uh, Sonnet 73 of uh, Shakespeare's sonnets is a parody blazon to his coy mistress by Andrew Marvell, probably the most famous blazon in English poetry, but is a parody blazon that inverts. He, he says he, he doesn't have time to uh, celebrate her beauty because uh, time's winged chariot hurries near. So they have that, that at the beginning, and chapter, the beginning of chapter four is, continues on with the arrival of Solomon's couch, and it's, it's the celebration of the beauty of the bride. And then there's this invitation again out, out into Lebanon, out into, the, out, into the, out into nature to enjoy love, and it climaxes with the lovers in the garden at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. So I think we, it, this section does kind of fit together narratively. You have a separation that leads to the bride searching and finding the bridegroom, then uh, the arrival of the bridegroom on what's called Solomon's wedding day. This, this will sound uh, sexist and domineering, but a kind of inspection of the bride <laughs> at the beginning of chapter four, uh, uh, phrased as a celebration of the bride, and then the union of the two lovers at the end of chapter four. That's kind of an overview of the section that we want to look at, and we'll go back and look at different particular sections. As I said, one of the dynamics of the poem, we'll see this again uh, next time when we get to chapter five, one of the dynamics of the poem is this dynamic of union and separation of approach, distance. Uh, and that's one of, the, one of the themes that you find in a lot of commentary on the poem, uh, that this is the, this is the story of the Christian soul, you could say, uh, where the Lord is off, sometimes very near, and there's an intimate communion with the Lord, but then uh, you find that the Lord is distance, distant. Why have you forsaken me? And the various poems of absence that we have throughout the Psalms, uh, songs of absence we have throughout the Psalms. Um, I think you could also see this in kind of a historical register that the Lord comes to his people, but then for various reasons uh, abandons his people or moves out. Uh, the Lord is uh, threatening to move out of the camp at the foot of Sinai after the golden calf incident. And the Lord does, in fact, move out of the temple in Ezekiel and abandons his temple to the Babylonians. Uh, and so Israel's history is kind of this dynamic of presence and absence of approach and distance. And um, I've, I've cited Paul Griffith uh, before, um, who has a Brazos commentary on the Song of Songs, and he makes the comment that uh, this is not just a dynamic of certain, kind, uh, certain, certain love stories. It's kind of inherent in love that you have this even in the most intimate moments, even when the lovers are together, there's still this sense of uh, incompletion, a sense of, uh, of non-consummation. And he ties that in, of course, to an eschatological perspective that there's a, even, even in our 
closest uh, intimacy with the Lord, there is still more to come. We don't yet see him face to face. Griffith describes it as a wound that's inherent in love, at least love that's love under the sun. As long as we're in this world, then any experience of love is going to uh, ha- leave us longing for an, longing for something more that we can't achieve, longing for something more that we can't have. And so there's always this searching and finding, and there's always this dynamic of nearness and absence that's kind of built into the nature of human love uh, pre-eschatologically. And again, that's 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 worked out in, by commentators in a in a register of personal personal uh, spirituality. If we take our attention back to the story of creation. At the very beginning, you see the great divisions between two things, whether that's the light or the, and the dark, whether it's the waters above and waters beneath, or whether it's the earth and the land. And then later on, you move into some of these greater patterns. And I think one of the things we see when we come to the wisdom literature is a greater appreciation of the significance of time and the movement between things, the interplay between light and dark, the night and the day. And here we see in the previous chapter, the winter passing and then a new season arriving. And just as in Ecclesiastes, the time for different things, in the wisdom literature, there is a renewed or a deepened appreciation of what time means and how our acquaintance with time brings out a deeper embeddedness and activity within the world. Right, and and uh, um, to put to uh, link that up with what I was saying earlier, there's a there's a time for uh, intimacy and there's a time for separation, and those are those are two um, two aspects of any any human love, two aspects of any walk with the Lord in this life. That I, I'm glad you brought up the the other wisdom literature because I think that at the beginning of chapter three, again at the beginning of chapter five that we'll look at next time, uh, we have uh, kind of an interesting twist on the uh, portraits that we have at the beginning of Proverbs. Proverbs is set up as instruction to a son, to a prince, and the opening instruction is about choosing the right, right woman. He has a choice between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and there are these set pieces, description of the two of these two women. Uh, one of the things that characterizes Lady Folly is that she roams the streets looking for men. <laughs> but now we have the bride doing precisely that when her Beloved is uh, absent from the bed. She goes searching in the streets. Um, in chapter 5, she goes searching in the streets and actually um, encounters watchmen who uh, abuse her. Um, uh, here, she just encounters the watchmen and asks them where, uh, where she can find her beloved. I think that putting those two together gives us an interesting kind of, a, uh, kind of three-dimensional perspective on wisdom. Wisdom is per- portrayed in one direction in, chapter, in, in the Proverbs. But in these passages in the Song of Songs, we have wisdom. I think this is still a depiction of a kind of wisdom. Wisdom that's searching for the bridegroom. But it's wisdom that risks being mistaken for, the, for Lady Folly. That it's a kind of oh, wise folly that drives her to go and seek the, seek the man. So uh, it, it puts me in mind of we, at the recent uh, Dallas regional course, we were talking about Genesis 38 and the activities of Tamar who dresses up as a harlot in order to fulfill, uh, get Judah to fulfill his obligations to give her a son, to give her a husband. Um, and Judah himself is the one who provides a son for her. But um, she's, there's, she's commended as more righteous than Judah, 
that's righteousness disguised as harlotry. And we have a number of examples of that throughout the Old Testament. I think Ruth would be another one who looks a lot like a daughter of Moab approaching a man at night who's been drinking, just like uh, Lot's daughters did. Uh, Lot's daughter who gave birth to Moab did exactly the same thing, but Ruth is doing it in a righteous way. So there's this in interesting interplay of wisdom and folly that we have when you read this passage against the background of the Proverbs. I wonder whether there's a broader contrast to be drawn in the notion of wisdom itself, where we have wisdom that is the wisdom of rule, the wisdom of the king, who's judging and dividing things, who's able to discern the true nature of things and shed light upon matters. But there's also another form of wisdom, which is cunning and the ability to use tactics and um, ploys to achieve things that would not be able to be achieved otherwise. And that's often a form of wisdom that's associated, for instance, with the women who deceive tyrants, who may not have power of their own, but who are able to act in a way that is that demonstrates a different sort of wisdom, a wisdom that is effective, but is not necessarily the same wisdom as the rule of Solomon or something like that. Yeah, and that's the wisdom that um, Jacob displays, the wisdom that David displays over and over again. Uh, he's, uh, uh, in First Samuel at least, before he becomes king, uh, he's one of the most uh, deceitful men in the Bible. I mean, he's, he rivals Jacob for the number of times that he puts on some kind of act or uh, does some kind of slippery kind of thing to, to get away from threats. Uh, but yeah, that's, I think that's a good way to put it. The wisdom had these, has, these two, uh, has these two dimensions to it. So in, in the opening scene, we have the bride going out and searching for the lover in the streets. She finds him and brings him back to her mother's house, as she says in verse 4. Uh, and then beginning verse 6, we, we move into this scene of something coming up from the wilderness. It's like columns of smoke. It's scented with myrrh and frankincense, all the powders of the merchant. Uh, and it's associated with Solomon, verse six, verse 7 says rather. It's the traveling couch of Solomon, uh, guarded by uh, these uh, 60 men, runners, mighty men of Israel who are uh, protecting it. There's, a, there's a, an illusion there, at least in part, of an exodus or uh, entry into the land. This is a kind of ark coming up from the wilderness. It's Israel uh, progressing through the wilderness and coming into the land. It seems to be Solomon coming in the uh, in the uh, in this traveling couch, but um, past I've come across essays that suggest that this is uh, the traveling couch of Solomon is actually his bride, and the uh, the description that's given of myrrh and frankincense, uh, the approach toward the toward the land, the climax, and the at the time when the uh, when his mother crowned him, and then going into chapter four, the his description of the bride leave open the possibility at least that this is. Not Solomon coming up from the wilderness, but this is the bride coming up from the wilderness to meet Solomon for the wedding day. And she's described as being like Solomon's resting place, his bed, his throne. And also another layer that we've uh, talked about before is that this has to do with the imagery here suggests a, a temple setting. Uh, myrrh and frankincense are associated with the temple. The scents that uh, described, posts of silver, a back of gold, purple fabric, uh, that's all suggests a kind of temple image, which again might associate it with the bride. In that case, then the, the crown in verse 11, uh, we could take in terms of uh, Proverbs 12, 4, which says that the crown, a, a good wife is a crown on a man's head. Anyway, that's, I think that's an interesting option uh, to, to think that this is the, what the poet is describing in the wilderness is 
it's something that belongs to Solomon, but it's the it's actually the bride that's entering into the land to meet Solomon to join him for the wedding day. It's it's the it's the bridal procession, like in uh, Psalm Psalm forty five. What do you make of the presence of the mother of the bride and the mother of Solomon in verses four and eleven? And also the supporting characters of the mighty men of, of Israel and the daughters of Zion. Yeah, the daughters of Zion. I um, don't know that we've talked about that. I, I think the daughters of Zion are the daughters of Jerusalem that are mentioned. Uh, we skipped over verse five, but they're mentioned there, and there's several places where the daughters are mentioned. If you think about it in terms of the the purely romantic nuptial imagery, this is the bridal party. It's Jerusalem that's the bride, I think or the land that's the bride. And the daughters would be the towns form the entourage for Jerusalem. And that's actually a word that's used for villages and towns that surround a large city in the Old Testament. It's the same, same word as daughter. So you have um, in the description of the land in Joshua, for example, you have particular towns and then their villages. But the word uh, in some of those contexts is bot, which is daughter. So you have cities that have daughters, daughter villages that surround it. So you have that that kind of double thing. And, you, and I think the the uh, it depends on how you take the the traveling couch. If these are if this is Solomon coming up, he's surrounded by an entourage of his men. Uh, this is his bodyguard. Same same kind of picture. If you have the the bride coming up, guarding the bride as she comes into Solomon's uh, into Solomon's presence. Uh, the yeah the mother is an interesting. The family connections I, I, I haven't explored in great depth in the song, but the, the 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 presence of both mothers in the in this passage is interesting. There are other references to other family members. The brothers uh, the brothers appear at the beginning and the end of the poem, and there are other references to uh, the mother. And there's a here especially there's a kind of return to the the mother's house. The bride is looking for her bridegroom, looking for her lover, and when she finds him, it's a kind of return to her house of origin. And maybe at least we can say that there's a, this kind of returns to a point we made in a previous uh, podcast. I was uh, pointing to another comment from Paul Griffith, uh, where the love that's being described here is, is a human love. And that means it's set within time. Uh, it's set within the context of memory and anticipation for the individual lovers. But it's also set in a, in a, uh, in a kind of, um, a generational context. So there are references to uh, both the bride's and the bridegroom's mother, and the, their love is not separated from that social that social setting. I don't, did you have thoughts about the mother's presence in here? I wasn't sure of what to make of it, but we see elsewhere in Scripture that connection between the mother and the bride. For instance, in um, Proverbs 31, um, Lemuel being taught about the virtuous wife by his mother. Mm-hmm. And then Christ, of mm-hmm. course, at the wedding of Cana, the presence mm-hmm. of his mother there as a significant relationship, the mother-son relationship mm-hmm. in the context of the wedding. The, yeah. other, the other thing perhaps about the mighty men is at 60, um, five by 12, a military formation mm-hmm. of Israel. Yeah, so five is the number of military formation. You've got 12 fives or five twelves, right? The procession that we have at the end of chapter 3, um, I think, comes to a climax with the beginning of chapter 4. And then this is a bad chapter break. Solomon's wedding day is the, is the scene at the end of verse 11. And then the lover, Solomon, the bridegroom, however we want to say that, is celebrating the beauty of his bride 
in chapter four, there's a, so that it moves very neatly from the, uh, uh, from the procession into the, into the intimacy of a wedding night. Um, one, one thing about the, um, the images that are used here, the similes that are used in this wasif at the beginning of chapter four, sometimes there's a, there's, there's a tendency to think that the imagery must be visual. Uh, there's an old Wittenberg door uh, picture that you can probably find online of the, the literal woman of the Song of Song, the literal bride, where they uh, took all of these similes literally and depicted her with actual honey dripping from her mouth, uh, from her lips. Um, I think they have Winnie the Pooh hanging somehow, collecting the honey from her lips. Um, she actually has uh, ewes in her hair. She has sheep in her hair, and her, her teeth really are you know, newly shorn ewes. So a goat, her hair is like goats. So I don't think it's to be taken visually. Some of it has a visual overtone. Uh, but I think that in some cases, at least, you have associations that are more important than any visual, maybe even than any sensible, that is sensual comparison. Your, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. That might be a description, that might be a visual description, but I think maybe more importantly, we should be thinking about associations of pomegranates elsewhere in the Bible. We've talked about this in, in connection with the temple. Or um, sometimes the, your neck is like a Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all round shields of the mighty men. She has a long, slender, majestic neck. There's probably a visual image there, but there's also there's a there's a, an overtone of the lovers describing her in terms of features of the land, features of nature that leave the same impression of awe and wonder as she does. So it's not so much the the visual comparison as the experience that he's having in seeing her and delighting in her is like the experience he has delighting in the land around him. And that I think helps to show that it's not just a selection of independent connections and metaphors, but it's a collective power that they have as they connect the woman with the land. Right. And I think that's, I think that's important that we take a, take a large, um, take the whole portrait together. Uh, I do think that individual descriptions or ind individual similes, uh, they're not insignificant. They're not just uh, randomly chosen. But I think the overall impression is just as important. Um, we, we talked in, uh, in, a lot, in previous episodes about the temple, temple imagery that's uh, here in the, that runs throughout the song. And I think this is one of the places where you find a hint of that. At the end of the poem, first six verses are, are a, the lover's delighted description of his beloved. And then he summarizes, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you that you are beautiful, my darling, goes back to the beginning of the chapter. So there's this frame around the poem. But the, the phrase, no blemish, I think uh, gives us a signal that something is uh, something more is going on here than just a matter of physical description. That is a, that is a physical description. But that's the terminology that's used for uh, priests. Priests have to be without blemish. Sacrifices have to be without blemish. And so I think that you get these sacrificial overtones to the poem uh, that um, the lover delights in his beloved in the way that the Lord delights in it and accepts and is pleased by the unblemished offering. Um, 
and that that fits with other aspects of the theology of sacrifice in Leviticus, which does have bridal and marital overtones. The difference between the experience of the two lovers um, might be interesting to observe here. The narrative elements falling primarily on the side of the bride, and then this experience of the bridegroom as being awestruck by the bride, whereas the bride is primarily lovesick in her relationship to the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, good point. And if we put that into the put in that into an allegorical uh, level, I think that there's a, a lot to muse on there. Uh, the love sickness is a is a desire for an intimacy, a face to face encounter that we don't yet have. I think that's an that's an inevitable and an important part of Christian experience. I think going the other direction is more striking that the Lord is awestruck by the bride. <laughs> Uh, that uh, Jesus is awestruck by his church, uh, which is a, uh, something that's it's hard to contemplate. We, we kind of get awestruck by the church, but for different reasons. We're appalled by the church. But when Jesus looks at his church, he is delighted in her and is awed by her beauty. Um, a couple of things that come out in the final part of chapter 4 that I want to highlight. One, one is the, the repeated phrase, my sister, my bride. We find it in verse 9, again in verse 10. Verse 12, probably missing some. 5-1, my sister, my bride. Uh, and that phrase itself is kind of arresting. I think that's a, among other things, that's an Edenic reference because Eve is first presented as a helper suitable to uh, fitting for Adam. Uh, his, his poem, when he sees her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is uh, usually in the Bible that's kin language rather than marital language. Um, and so there's a, there's a brother-sister dimension to their relationship. Oregon Bernstein Husey has made this point about uh, marital relations in general, that there has to, a, a, a woman has to be sister and bride to a husband. Um, bride as a sexual object, sister as a co-laborer, as kin, and so on. And uh, there's an, it uh, uh, perverts the marital relation if it's merely bride without the sister element. Uh, the other, the other kind of oddity of all this is the word for bride. Prior to the Song of Songs, the word for bride is used for daughter-in-law primarily. That's an odd thing. The the uh, the transformation of that word. Uh, I believe it's the case that after the Song of Songs, canonically after the Song of Songs, the word is predominantly used as bride rather than rather than daughter-in-law. But but at the beginning of uh, beginning of the Bible, the word is uh, is primarily used in a different in a different sense, maybe pressing it too far to suggest that there might be something to make of that. There, there are these odd, odd twists in certain allegories, allegorical depictions of Israel's history. Ezekiel 16, the Lord finds Israel kicking in her blood after, of her afterbirth, uh, raises her as his daughter, and then spreads his cloak over her and takes her as his wife. So there's a kind of daughter-bride imagery that's going on there. I wonder if we can try to tease out some kind of uh, uh, some kind of Trinitarian connection. The church is a daughter to the father. The church is bride to the son. So the church is both, and, and the church is joined to the bridegroom by the spirit. So the church is both, both uh, uh, daughter and daughter and bride to God, but in different, but in different senses. Within chapter three, just looking back, um, there's 
one key verse that we find repeated on a number of occasions within the book. Um, I joy you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or waken my love until she pleases. And we see a similar statement in 2.7, and then later on, I think in chapter 8, verse 4, um, it presents part of that temporal mm-hmm. delay that's not yet, not yet, mm-hmm. not yet. How do you think that text functions as a key um, to the larger movement of the book? Is it something that we should pay particular attention to on that front? Uh, I was hoping you wouldn't notice that I kept skipping <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, I've never, that's never clicked into place to me. Um, and part of the issue is I've, I've never been able to fully satisfy myself on how to translate that. Is it the love that's being, uh, is it the love or the lover that's being, not being roused or awakened? The translation could go either way. You're not aroused or awakened, my love, until it pleases. But I think that I would, I would definitely at least get uh, go in the direction that you suggested that it's about it's a matter of timing, and that love that's rushed or aroused or awakened quickly at the wrong time uh, goes wrong, and that there's a right time for pursuing love, and that there's a wrong time for pursuing love. My my one impression about is um, in the final verse there is this call to hurry um, and the reference to a gazelle or young stag which takes up same some of the language that we see within this particular call to delay and it's spirit and the bride say come there's a a hurry at this point yeah so yeah it does it does the the book ends with this longing for the the bridegroom to appear uh, which you know uh, the still the, the other part of that i think is the this this uh, fits with the dynamic that I that I was describing at the beginning. This this movement of presence and departure of uh, consummation, and yet at the same time anticipation. And the and the poem ends with continuing anticipation, even though at the center of the poem, right at the begin end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, the lovers are together feasting on one one another. So there's a consummation at the center of the poem, but then at the end of the poem, there's still this hope for a further consummation to come. So I think that the not awakening the love is related to that. I mean, one of the other interesting suggestions that's been made, or the, a way to solve a puzzle, how, why is it that we're being adjured by gazelles and hinds? <laughs> uh, we are going to take an oath by gazelles and hinds of the field. That's an odd thing to take an oath on. But the Hebrew, the Hebrew seems to be punning. There's a pun on hosts. I think it's the word gazelle that is a pun on hosts. And I think the, the, other, the other phrase uh, might also be a pun. So there might be a... There's kind of an uh, indirect reference to the Lord's name or the Lord of hosts or something in, the, in that adjuration. So that's another puzzle that I've never been satisfied that I've figured out. There's also a number of references to awakening things and also dreams, perhaps. That element within the song, I think, there is also that temporal dimension that we move from wakefulness to sleep and then back again but within the song itself some of the imagery seems to be that which is more akin to that of a dream Mm -hmm. Um, and the movements that occur are dreamlike in some senses yeah and the just yeah the whole uh the whole style especially in the the first couple chapters where it's hard to see how the different snippets fit together it's like a montage you have little 
small glimpses of scenes, uh, but you, it's, hard to, it's hard to see a continuity to the different scenes, hard to make a total picture out of it. And that, you know, that lends to the kind of dreamlike quality. We talked about the exoticism of the poem before, and I think that's uh, another part of it. Well, I think that one of the one of the other things we can kind of draw from that verse, and I think from the other things we've been talking about, is the there's a, what is the Lord doing in drawing near to Israel and departing? I mean, so you could say that's in part a matter of Him coming near and then withdrawing because of Israel's sin. Um, so it's a it's an act of judgment. But uh, what's happening in the poem is that the uh, the proximity and then the departure actually arouses the bride's desire. So that she she goes plunging into the street searching for him because he's been near and now he's gone. If he'd just been distant, that that would be a di- the the the, uh, the desire wouldn't be awakened in the same way. So there's a there's a kind of a courtship, a wooing that's going on. Uh, if, again, thinking about this in allegorical register, there's a kind of wooing that's going on in the Lord's relationship to Israel, and perhaps also with the church that he's drawing near and withdrawing as a way to elicit our passion and our desire to follow him and that movement again relating it to sleep is one that could be related to the experience of adam placed into a deep sleep while the bride is formed and then she awakens him uh, or he is awakened to her that movement from night to the day that rising of the sun um, could maybe be connected to this as well Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.